but it's individuals, right? If I have two people uh, running a call center and they decide that they want to make it things a little bit more inclusive and they take the practical steps to do that, that elevates change from the ground up. And then other departments can see, oh, wow, they're really functioning in a very healthy way. Their productivity is up, their retention's up, their, it, all the visible metrics are good. Let's find out what they're doing. And then that carries over to the other team and the other team. And that's how you get that culture of inclusion. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JJ Recruitment Group, specialist HR recruiters. Now, whether of course you're listening to this for the first time or the hundredth time, please let me take this opportunity to say thank you for joining me today, especially because I have a fantastic guest, particularly if you're interested in returning to work or of course, if you're interested in the issues surrounding diversity and inclusion, because today I'm joined by Dr. Jen O'Ryan, who is an inclusion, diversity, diversity and equity strategist and experts who is very much focused on helping people to build authentically inclusive and welcoming companies. Now, for my HR L&D audiences out there and the leaders listening to this, this is absolutely top agenda stuff for a lot of you in your business at the moment. So I hope this will be a very insightful journey into the world of ED&I. Now, with plenty of experience in leadership, mental health, and change management as well, there's lots we can talk about. I should also add that Jen holds a PhD in human behavior, which focused on gender identity and sexual orientation, as well as an MBA in technology management and a BA in ethics and human behavior. So we are definitely joined by an absolute expert here and someone who really understands the challenges that HR and L&D leaders like yourself are facing at the moment when it comes to developing a culture of inclusiveness for employees, clients, and of course, customers. Now, Jen is also founder and principal of Double Tool Consulting and the author of the best-selling book, Inclusive AF, A Field Guide for Accidental Diversity Experts. It's designed for anyone thinking about inclusion and diversity, and it's something we're definitely going to be finding out more about during the course of this podcast. Without further ado, Dr. Jen O'Ryan, very much welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. I'm going to start with the first question, which isn't necessarily related to returning to the office or diversity inclusion. It's a question I ask all my guests, which is what do the words human resources mean to you? I think it's gone through so many evolutions, right? Like my first response is the 1970s, nine to five human resources, where it was just kind of the basic mechanics of (laughs) onboarding people and making sure everybody was uh, functioning correctly. Uh, Now I think it's really gone more to good humaning. Like how do we, how do we get the best out of people uh, and contributing in the best way that they can for the organizational goals? For sure. I think HR leaders will be out there going, yeah, certainly agree more, couldn't agree more. So let's jump into this. Um, my introduction probably gave a lot of background to your expertise here, but why is everyone talking about diversity and inclusion now? I mean, I've been running this podcast now for a couple of years. It wasn't necessarily top of the agenda for HR professionals even I'd say as as, as close as two or three years ago, but right now it seems to be absolute top priority, which makes me think, one, why wasn't it before? And B, why is it now? Yeah, and, and there's so many different elements of that. So I, I started 
really focusing in DEI about six years ago. And then it was more about um, issues around opening doors for historically marginalized, historically ignored populations, and really a lot of focus around gender and what does that mean? And then when we talk about pay and, and gender gaps, what does that what does that actually look like? And I think all the changes that we went through in 2020, uh, the economic uncertainty, the shutdown, the, the pandemic, the George Floyd murder, uh, all of the civil unrest related to that, I think that really cleared the table and opened a lot of doors for executives and HR leaders to say, we don't even know where to start with all of this, but we want to do the right thing. And so we're listening. We have questions and bringing in all the different experts that can help them through that. And I think that has really elevated the, the need for not just, you know, checkbox diversity, but really internalizing, no, we need all these different perspectives because that's that's the differentiator, right? That's how, that's an organization or a company survives a disruption, Sure. Whether that disruption is a new technology or that disruption is all the uncertainty that we've had over the last few years, we need those diverse perspectives. And I think that has really triggered the need for real conversations around inclusion and diversity. I think you mentioned a, a great point there, which is that checkbox diversity. And I think for the businesses that have kind of followed that approach initially, they're doing it because it seems to be doing the right thing rather than authentically doing the right thing. It's those businesses that haven't necessarily been able to overcome toxic work environments or because they don't have an authentically great inclusive culture because all they've done is a checkbox exercise. So what do you find when you're looking at those kind of businesses? Are there any sort of common uh, commonalities in relation to what people are doing wrong or what they get wrong when it comes to diversity and inclusion or, or why they're unable to overcome, for want of a better term, a toxic work environment? Oftentimes it's because it's it's not fully resourced. So um, I, I have identified over the course of the last you know two decades of doing change management all the different reasons um, that these initiatives tend to fail. But honestly, it comes down to typically a, a lack of resources. So focus, time, and dedication. It, it's a sustained effort. Uh, it's not something that you can have a six week session on unconscious bias and then all of a sudden your workplace just figures it out, right? Humans are messy. And, and so you need that sustained effort. Uh, and then oftentimes I think that so much of this is, is put into an HR silo conversation. So a lot of these initiatives, organizational health, toxic uh, work environments, inclusion, diversity, tend to just fall in HR. And, and HR professionals, for all the good that they do, they may not be equipped or they may not have the capacity or even the interest or desire to really champion the, the deep internal conversations it need to have. And they're really, you know, they can be really emotionally charged conversations as well. For sure. And so I think it starts with taking that DEI conversation out and breaking it out of a silo of, okay, we have organizational health here and our diversity initiatives here and then HR over here and really seeing how it infuses into the entire organization because it, it, it lives in the daily experience of individuals. Right? Absolutely. It's an interesting point as well, because I think, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast that I've recorded, which is, HR leaders have a really tough job at the minute because they're supposed to be experts in everything. And <laughs> it's simply not possible. And diversity inclusion now is one of those areas you mentioned it there that often falls into uh, you know, the, the now the jurisdiction of an HR professional to lead on that. So we are seeing some responses, and you mentioned resources there. So just thinking about that, well, I've seen a lot of businesses, particularly the larger brands that, that have probably bigger budgets, suddenly hiring chief diversity officers and you know mm -hmm. different individuals specifically focused on improving diversity and inclusion for their business. And you think on one hand, that's fantastic because they're investing in a in 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 change and, and improving their their I, I guess the way their inclusivity across across the board. 
Sometimes I see them only on a fixed-term contract basis, which I think throws up a slightly different question. Is, is this a, a continual investment or is this something that they think can be changed quickly? And, and maybe it can be, I don't know. So, but also, not everyone has those resources to be able to hire in a dedicated individual responsible for that element. So I guess I don't know where I'm going with the question. Maybe is it, you know, how would you recommend a smaller business without those resources tackled the issue? And for those that have got the resources to bring in a chief diversity officer, so to speak, you know, what's the next step after that? Because obviously that's that's the start of the process, I would imagine. Yeah. And a lot of it really has to do with they have a chief diversity officer, but where does that CDO align? Yeah. Because if that CDO aligns with HR, then they're naturally going to tend towards whatever the agendas and the initiatives of, of that that VP or that you know that environment is. But to the larger question, I think it's it's really very similar answers in in, in the small business owner or a startup environment or a global entity, right? It, it comes down to just being aware of what are the what are the big pitfalls, what they should what should they be looking for? And that's where it comes to that sustained effort. You, know, you have these aspirational goals, your CDOs outlined, here's all the things we need to accomplish. We have data from HR and we we know from our operations teams this is really what needs to change. But then you need those individuals in the middle, what I lovingly call the accidental experts, who really know how to take those initiatives, break it down, and then execute. You know, implement implement things that are that are safe and effective, and and really have meaningful impact. And that that is actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book because it makes it more accessible for individuals who don't have the resources or want to work with a consultant to really say, okay, I can break this down, and if it's just me and another coworker, here's the things that we can do within our realm to make it a little bit better. And oftentimes that's how change starts. Like, yes, you need the executives, you need the C-suite level support, but it's individuals, right? If I have two people uh, running a call center and they decide that they want to make it things a little bit more inclusive and they take the practical steps to do that, that elevates change from the ground up. And then other departments can see, oh, wow, they're really functioning in a very healthy way, their productivity is up, their retention's up, their it, all the visible metrics are good. Let's find out what they're doing, and then that carries over to the other team and the other team, and that's how you get that culture of inclusion and, and, and overall good humaning is what I like to call it. Yeah, for sure. We're definitely going to touch upon some of the aspects in that book. Before I do, though, I mean, one thing I'd love to know because. I see from my perspective, I think sometimes there's a fear in trying to make change happen. If you don't, you know, if I look at myself, I'm a white, middle-aged, Caucasian male who probably doesn't, well, doesn't have, let's not say probably take that bit out, definitely doesn't have the experience of what it may feel like to be a, a minority or you want to promote and you want to champion inclusivity, but you don't always feel like you're the best person to, to, to drive that change. But there are so many HR leaders listening to this. And I know that collectively, we should all be doing something to drive change, to improve the situation. What's the one thing that leaders can do right now if they're listening to this, no matter what their background, no matter what their culture, beliefs, sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. What's the one thing we could do to start making change straight from this podcast? What would that first thing be? Understanding that it's okay to say that you are a middle-aged white guy who doesn't have the experiences of, of these other populations and really leading with that curiosity of, I want to make the world better. What does that mean? Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of energy around, I'm going to I'm gonna just charge up the hill and I'm going to make this world a better place. It starts with asking. Like You have to have a deep understanding of the lived experience of the individuals that you're trying to support. And the best way to get that, other than educating yourself, is to ask them. And I think that's where a lot of these initiatives fall down, 
is, you know, okay, so I'm going to take my technical background. So I spent the first 20 years of my career working primarily in tech, launching new initiatives. And it was shocking how many decisions are made for these global platforms by six or seven people in a conference room in Seattle. Yeah. You know, they're, they're making decisions with what they have available, but they're also making decisions largely assuming that this will work in all the other regions. And that's where we need to take a step back and say, okay, I, here's what I know. Here's what I think and go out to the populations that you're trying to support and find out, is this really a problem for you? And if it is a problem, how does it manifest? And would these solutions work and bringing those individuals to the table in, in outlining what would the solution look like? I love that. And I have to say, so something that um, a previous speaker we had, Margaret O'Cheng, who joined the podcast, who gave me some inspiration within our business. You talked about the small businesses earlier. So we're only a 20-employee business. So we're quite small. And you think, well, with only 20 employees, there isn't much we could actually do. But on the back of that podcast, we decided to launch an internal EDI uh, steering committee. And I didn't know where to start it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to ask all the employees, would you like to be part of this? And if you would, great. And it's open to anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. And the one thing is, I don't want to be leading it because as MD of the business, it should come from you. And we, we swap the leadership each time. But I was really surprised by the findings from that, that we had eight people volunteer to be part of it. And that's almost 50% of the entire business wanted to have an input and you think, yeah. wow, if I hadn't asked the question, and we meet we meet once a month, and the amount of outcomes we've generated from those 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 pretty short meetings, really, and we have actionable, you know, things we need to achieve before the next one, and someone else will lead the next one. It's been really, really encouraging. And I think I was just talking about that because you said, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a really big business with the resources for a chief diversity officer or a small business like mine with 20 employees. It's really surprising when you start asking those questions. Actually, how many people want to be involved and want mm-hmm. to try and promote change and, and some of the um, results that come on the back of that. And obviously from your experience working in some much bigger and, and and many change initiatives, I'd love to know some of the things that you've seen on the back of some of the change projects that you've been involved in and some of the outcomes of those. It's been revolutionary. Um, now that we're in more of a digital environment and everything's going virtual, it, it comes down to how are you representing your brand, for lack of a better word, everywhere. So everything speaks, right? And a lot of it really has to do with how are you representing yourself and do your customers and employees see themselves in your brand and in your message? So, you know, it's things like um, going out to a webpage, you know, for a business when you're doing research and, you know, the landing page can be spectacular and representation and accessible and all the right things. And then you go a few layers down and maybe nobody's looked at that content for a couple of years and it's a little dated. Um, and, and that's the type of thing that, and I, I love that you had such a high amount of interest and engagement in that, because again, that's, it's the individual collectives who really will drive that change. And they'll also ask a lot of questions that you and I might not even think about. Yeah. And actually, surprisingly for us, we found some of the more introvert individuals actually voicing the most in, in those individual meetings, like they gained some confidence and really found their voice, which I thought was fantastic. And of mm. course, I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Jen, that you are, of course, author of the best-selling book, Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts. It's a book designed for anyone thinking about inclusion and diversity in their business, which I imagine is most of the people listening to this podcast right now, which is great. Inside the book, you do offer a fantastic three-part roadmap for anyone who is implementing ED&I initiatives in the workplace at the moment. There are some great anecdotes in there as well. I wonder if you could just talk about that roadmap in a nutshell for those people listening and if there's any kind of takeaways from the book that we can find if you either go and purchase the book and there will be a link in the episode notes for people to do that, but also some takeaways now on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So I think the most important thing of this is that it's a journey. And I know everybody talks about a journey. It's a buzzword right now, but it really is a journey. And so I, I wrote the book in such a way that if somebody picks it up, 
my idea was they they would be flying to a conference from Seattle to Florida and they they see it in the bookshop and they pick it up and read through it on the flight. And by the time they land, they've got notes and highlights and action steps that they can actually take the minute they are, you know, outside of baggage claim. Yeah. Um, but it's also, like I said, a journey. And so I created this so that people can, wherever they are right now, one person or, you know, a CDO with a brand new team, uh, they can go through and take away things based on where they are, where their organization is, and then apply that. And then six months later, they come back to the book and they're like, okay, well, now we're in a very different place or something's changed in the industry. And they flip through and they can find sections that that get them through that next level. Um, so the, the roadmap itself is really, it starts with getting the why, why inclusion and why now. And that's, that's fundamental. People should be asking themselves, especially in HR, because they're so uniquely positioned to see all aspects of the company. Sure. But why are they focusing on it and really getting granular? Because oftentimes they're focusing on it because an executive told them to. And that's valid, but you need to figure out, okay, if that's the why, then how do we structure our initiatives in a way that meets that need, but also has meaningful impact to employees and isn't just kind of a flavor of the week tagline. Then once you really have a good grounding in, in the why, then it builds on, okay, here's things you should think about based on your, your the size of your organization, uh, the amount of influence that you have. Are you an individual contributor or are you senior director in HR or, or are you the owner of the company and you have two employees? Yeah. But getting a sense of like where your industry is, how people are receptive to, to information. Because if I'm working with a small tech startup, they're typically going to have a different way of absorbing information than if I'm working a very mature company where most of the people are 45 years or older. And that's not that's not a generalization based on cohort. It's just kind of like the ecosystem. And so once you get a sense of where you are in the ecosystem, then the third part is practical steps and applications and things that you can do mapping out. Here's what you can do in 30 days and in six months and in 18 months and really building that pipeline of a cohesive strategy, whether you're one person or entire team. And when I was in engineering, I, I I used to really aggravate my engineering team because I would come to the table with, okay, don't tell me we can't do anything in 30 days. Even if it's a small little button on a landing page somewhere, we can change something in 30 days. I can add pronouns to my auto signature in less than 30 days. Yeah. And that starts to normalize and spark conversations. And just because it's a small change doesn't mean it's not impactful. So one thing I'm quite intrigued by, and I've obviously had a lot of great guests on the, on the show. If I look, use yourself as, an, as a case in point, here, you've got 20 years experience in change management in, I guess, traditionally, potentially male-led uh, sort of disciplines of engineering, you mentioned data and tech. You've got over 10 years worth of study. If you look at right back to your BA in, in human ethics and then the PhD in diversity and inclusion, this is something that clearly really burns passionately for you as a subject area, as a research area. Um, but where does that come from? Because we get a lot of people writing books now. They're on trend. Let's get something that works in HR. I'm going to go book. And that's not, dis don't want to discredit that. But this is something that clearly burns deep within you and has done for a number of years. So what is it that drives your passion and your, your passion for research in the area, your passion for change in these areas? Where does that come from? It really, thank you for asking that because that's such a powerful question, I think, as far as why, like, why do people show up the way that they do in the spaces they do? I've been involved with the LGBTQ plus community forever. And I, that was that was the basis of, of my dissertation and, and a lot of my work. And what I found was I knew I wanted to do something to give back to the community and, and do something that would be meaningful for people's lives. And you know, as one does, um, I was trying to figure out exactly what it would look like. And we had yet another rash of 
uh, suicides among LGBTQ plus adolescents and, and children. Um, or they were perceived to be LGBTQ in some cases. And I was like, this is that crystallized for me when kids are dying. And when they're not dying, they're still having these horrible negative outcomes and, and all of the things. And so I, I put my research hat on and I, I looked and almost every bit of literature at that time, every bit of research positioned growing up as LGBTQ as an inherent risk factor. I realized I'm like, we're looking at this the wrong way. There's nothing wrong with our queer kiddos. They're fine. It's that environmental response yeah. that exacerbates or mitigates that 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 risk for potential outcomes later on. So the crux of my dissertation was looking at environmental factors that contributed to healthy development later in life. And as I started going through that process, I was looking at my organizational change and the initiatives that I was launching. And it, it was like, we replicate things over and over and over from, from the time that we're children, we replicate that all the way through the rest of our life. Probably past that, but it's really hard to substantiate. So it's it's applying that, those dynamics to the workplace and saying, yeah, you can have policies all day long. You can have most amazing uh, marketing campaigns and you can bring in individuals. But if you aren't dealing with the day-to-day dynamics, it, it's lost. And then even on a more personal level, just seeing all the different environments where, you know, so much potential is lost. So much energy has gone into shifting and compartmentalizing and pretending to be and conforming and not speaking up and not challenging toxic leaders. And if when we take that energy and we invest it into innovation and we invest it into people like popcorning ideas off of each other, exactly what you're talking about, the amount of change that you can affect with eight people on your team. Yeah it's just so powerful and people want to be seen for who they are. That's a human need. And once you find a way to tap into that and really elevate it, the organizational it, it is palpable. You can feel it in organizations when they have that, that shift in that experience. And it's so much better for everybody. Right. So I, I love the, how organic and authentic it comes across. I can clearly see that it's something, well, it's evident in everything that you've done. And as she talks about something at the end, which is perhaps not directly relevant to the podcast we're talking about now, but um I, that's why one of the reasons I'm quite passionate about not removing names of a CV to standardize them, because I think the name mm-hmm. says so much about who we are, that we should be proud and whatever, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change how a hiring person's going to view a CV, irrespective of the name is there or not, but to hide that name hides who we are. And I'm a big fan of not uh, taking names of a CV. So that's a personal thing, but um, it is interesting there hearing you talk. And right at the start of that, it brought me back a little bit to my university days because my first, and we're going back 22 years ago now when I was at university, it was at that age, I think it's different now. Look at my daughter who's 12 years old. She's definitely more up to speed now with the different terms and the acronyms. And that's great. And she's only 12 years old. When I came to university, the, the, the notion of LGBT was quite new to me. And we had an LGBT officer at university who's a good friend of mine, I called David Clark. And he really, um, I guess, broadened my view of the world to, to a degree where I actually ended up writing my dissertation on the marginalization of Chicanas in Mexico and the, and, and the female gender issues in, in theatre and performance. So it resonated with me at the time. But even then, you, know, you don't find yourself in the world of work. And it, unfortunately, I guess it, it kind of didn't have the same resonance later when you're trying to find my feet. And you come back and you realize now it's right back in the public consciousness. But the acronyms have changed. We're now talking about LGBTQ+, you mentioned, or QIA. I wonder if you could just help for the listeners. You may be similar to me before. What are the differences now in relation to gender identity and, and orientation? Is there a recommended way that HR leaders should be tackling LGBTQIA issues in the workplace? 
is it now old fashioned to think of it as an LGBT agenda? Do we need to think of it in, in, in broader terms now? Because obviously when I, we're going back 20 years, but I knew it as LGBT 20 years ago and now it's, it's changed, it's evolved. So what's mm-hmm. the situation now and how should HR leaders be tackling those issues? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I think that should stay front of mind. So I, I used to do a lot of work with um, educators and and people who, who worked with kids who weren't their own. And, and my advice was always, you model and you intervene and the inclusive language that you use isn't just for the kids that you know who are out. It's for the kids that you don't know who aren't out. Yeah. So that's why when we talk about, you know, rolling out LGBTQ plus policy, it, it really needs to be abroad. This is benefiting all of our employees. But I used to have a course, and I may need to rebrand it, bring it back up again. But um, 2018, there was a lot of questions I was getting around gender. What does it mean? Non-binary, gender fluid, transgender, gender diverse yeah. human. And it, so I, I actually broke it down and I'm like, this is what it means. This is what it doesn't. And really, I think it's just a lot of making sure that individuals, yes, have a front of mind. Yes, do, you know, educate yourself from credible sources and, and bring in your experts. But then it's also just understanding that there are different ways of being and not necessarily assuming that your, you know, your colleague is straight, cisgender, um, all the things. Just just leave it open for um, people to share their stories with you. Yeah, I love that. It's It's been really, um, as a parent, it's been great for us because, you know, I speak to my daughter who's 12 and she hasn't quite decided yet because I mean, she's there so much more open-minded and it's, I, I just don't remember my childhood being quite the same. It seemed much more binary. You were one thing or another and anything else as you say was almost seen as a negative, a negative label. Whereas now it's almost, it, 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 it seems to be in that generation improving significantly. And it's actually, we need to bring that into the workplace now and our 12 year olds can teach me a thing or two. I think that's a wonderful place for the future, but we need to be making some of these changes now. And you mentioned then that, you know, go to the credible sources, find your experts. In your book, you refer to accidental experts. So what do you mean by that term? And what it must mean, it must be quite a powerful term for you because you put it in the title of your book. Yeah. So the accidental experts, uh, which again I, is a term I use lovingly, I consider myself an accidental expert. It comes up a lot in uh in the tech space because you have somebody, there will be a need, somebody will need to learn something very specific. And that person will go out and and do some research and get a general sense of what's going on, like a one or two level understanding of what, what is happening, um, or the code or the regulation or whatever it is. And suddenly, since that person knows a little bit more than everybody else on the team, they become the expert. I they are the short list. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so oftentimes that for um, inclusion and diversity, oftentimes it's just somebody who is really passionate about LGBTQ plus inclusion, visibility, representation, making sure that, you know, everybody has, has a voice, everybody can see themselves. And it's somebody who feels, you know, passionate about that. And they start implementing changes. They start pushing. They start using whatever they have available to them to elevate that cause. Sometimes in IND, the accidental experts are people who are just really good at getting things done. They are, they are just precise and they have a fine blend of research and being able to execute and also fail spectacularly and then learn from that failure and then launch again. And sometimes those are the individuals who are tasked with championing IND issues because they're just really effective at getting things done. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. 
JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Well, that, as soon as you started to explain it, I almost felt like a bell, you know, it, the ball dropped and it's like, okay, now I completely understand what it means in that term. And you, I, I can see where I probably, in my time, have, I've made people accidental experts as well because they know more and I've suddenly given them that title a little bit. It totally resonates. To play a little bit of devil's advocate, and I'm, I'm, got, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this. Apologies, I'm going to be out there and just say, look, this is a difficult question, but I think it's worth one raising in an HR context. You've got HR leaders, L&D leaders trying to you know, deliver L&D initiatives and HR leaders trying to improve uh, the authenticity of their inclusive work environments and, and, and all these things, which is great, great work. But there are also employees that probably have some potentially deeply religious beliefs or strong opinions that actually this movement towards a more inclusive workplace, particularly in relation to LGBTQ+, sexual orientation, gender identity, actually they really disagree with it. And whether that's religious or whether it's just personal issues, mm. they just don't agree with it. It's going to be very, very hard, almost impossible potentially to get these people on board for your agenda. And if you've got a big business, obviously the higher chance that there's going to be more of these individuals available mm. just through economy of scale. How do we tackle those pe- those individuals? And how do we even get them on board? Is it impossible to get these people on board? I don't know if you've had any experience in, in managing change in relation to, to, to such people. Yeah, and that's actually where that's actually where I'm brought in quite often is because okay. and it's one of the it's one of the points that I call out why why initiatives like this can fail even when they're amazing, um, it, because it has a it has a way of manifesting differently. So sometimes when you're rolling out IND initiatives, you do have these pocket of people who for whatever reason are resistant, yeah. and then it just kind of like hey, riding out the clock, hoping the energy goes away and nothing will have to change, and then it just fails, it sputters out, and. So I, I look at it like we've got a spectrum. We've got a spectrum of humans, right? And this is related to um, change in general, but specifically inclusion and diversity change. Um, so we've got people on one side that are absolute champions. They're advocates. They're on board. I could geek out with them all day long, and, and it would be amazing. But you can't spend too much time with them. Otherwise, you won't get anything really done, right? And then the very other end of the spectrum, you have people who are resistant for whatever reason. Unfortunately, there's just a percentage that will never come along. But in the middle, you have this huge population of what I like to call the ambivalence. So people who they walk through the world without ever having to think about what it's like to be a woman of color or LGBTQ plus or a marginalized population. They just haven't thought about it. And those are the people that I like to bring in because once they think about it a little bit differently and once they see the experience of of this other segment of the population, it's easy to bring them over to that end of the spectrum sure. where they're where they become advocates and, and champions for it. I mean, it's I use it like the uh, the experience of the the curb cutouts that we have in the states. I'm sure where you are as well. Um, they have the curb cutouts for people with mobility issues, uh, and if you've never had to push a heavy stroller or had to not be able to lift your foot up high enough, it wouldn't occur to you why those are important. Yeah. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then you're like, oh, absolutely. We need to go fund this and change. Once I have conversations with the ambivalence, we start to get that momentum and we start to get that change. And we start to pull more people on board who had maybe a little closer to the resistor end of the spectrum. But really, that's that's where the change happens. It's a daily practice. 
Do you ever get involved in a negotiation with the with the individuals? Let, let's say it's uh, because of strong religious beliefs, as an example, where because you know inclusivity is about inclusive, it being inclusive of regardless of, of religion, gender, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. So there's an element there that they may not be able to overcome the religious issues, but actually we're also trying to make it more inclusive of of your beliefs, whatever that might be. And we're doing X, Y, and Z. And do you ever find there is a negotiation there, or is it is it often just too? binary or too resistant for that for that negotiation to even take place once you find the commonality what's the common goal you know if it's an organization we're all working towards some shared goal together right yeah and it's it's creating a safe and trusted space and i know that term also gets really overused but when i'm talking about bringing people together at a table it is about diverse perspectives i don't want just a bunch of people who agree with me sure you know it's not just about i don't want people who just look like me and think like me but if i don't have people who don't agree with me we're not going to get anything effective done so i also want people who don't necessarily agree with me to feel that they can voice a contrary opinion at that table because that's where we're going to get to not only a better result but yeah. I'm going to have my beliefs challenged. I think um, I think McKinsey have done a quite a famous report. I think it was 2016, going back a bit now. But um, there's many reports coming out now that shows the more diverse your board, the more diverse your workforce, the better the results. I don't think every I haven't seen any evidence that, that goes is contrarian to that either. So I think that you've you've summed up why that is very very well there in that response. Thanks for that. Um, for those then working from the L&D perspective, we've talked a lot about how HR leaders can implement change and improve change and and, and develop more inclusive. And authentic workplace is really important. What about for those that are developing the the L and D initiatives on limited budgets, limited resources? What can we do for those individuals listening to this? Those leaders that really want to, de- you know, develop an L and D strategy that that improves authentic, inclusive organizational mm-hmm. cultures, but they just feel limited. Well, I, I think at the crux of, of developing a, an effective learning and development strategy is taking a step back and saying, how do the individuals in your organization actually learn? How are they receptive to information? How how What can you put out there that, that is moving away more from the, the long, arduous, you know, training resources that are out there that probably lack in representation, they lack in visibility, they may be based in stereotypes and kind of a little outdated anyway, and moving them more towards these short, effective uh, bits of content that they can really connect to. I mean, one of the examples I like to use is that uh, uh, Procter & Gamble has put out some commercials. This is not a book for Procter & Gamble, Uh, no sponsorship, but um, they have put out some incredibly effective uh, ads with social impact that really get to the heart of what it is we're trying to solve. And they're not overly produced and they're not that long. And it's bits of information like that, that humans connect with more effectively in in my perspective than, than, you know, having them watch a course with different scenarios and clicking and taking a quiz and assessment. So it also lends in well to not having a lot of budget because those are things that you can create pretty inexpensively. So keeping keeping it in house actually can be a lot more cost effective in the long term potentially in terms of results than mm-hmm. maybe outsourcing or because you're keeping it in house you're building that culture internally and it might seem like it's an expensive and time consuming process maybe to begin with but actually the long term impact is is potentially more significant if you're able to do that. Yeah, and really keeping front of mind what is it that you're trying to get out. Do you need to have your employees have a bit of information because of regulation, or do you want them to really understand? the nuance of a specific topic, because the nuance of a specific topic, you can record yourself on a phone for 45 seconds, and that will actually probably get more engagement because people want that human aspect of it. Yeah, it feels more authentic as well, doesn't it? And there's sometimes yeah, not overly produced. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're having a conversation. 
I'm going to I'm going to redirect the needle a little bit just because I know that you you know you involve heavily in change management. I know this is something that you've been quite heavily involved in recently, which is post pandemic officers returning to the workplace and returning to offices. And we found, particularly in recruitment now, you know, huge percentages of workforces either working completely at home, going back to a hybrid office, or even full-time back to the office. For those that are HR leaders trying to manage this change and getting people to come back into the office, because that's the environment they want to go back, or even go back to a hybrid when they were used to going 100% from home. Why aren't people ready to go back to what they always knew and were comfortable with before the pandemic? I guess question number one. And is there anything that HRs can do to help prepare people now for the change to return, even if it's not a full time, even if it's just on a, on a hybrid basis? What can HRs do to try and ease that? What seems to be a bit of a pain point for employees in the UK, we're talking about the great resignation. I don't know if it's the same in the States. People are voting with their feet. They're changing jobs. They want to maintain the new work balance they've discovered, which often has involved working from home for a longer period than they experienced pre-pandemic. But that's not going to be you know, possible to maintain for all businesses where they do need an office presence or certainly a hybrid presence. So what would your advice be in terms of the change projects that you've been involved in for helping HR leaders to prepare their teams for the change back? I think it, it all comes back to understanding how much we have fundamentally changed over the last two years. So had the had the pandemic somehow magically gone away after four months, right? It would have been a much easier transition to come back into the office, even on a hybrid level. But we've 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 reset ourselves. And we've reset ourselves in the fact that we have, you know, we we've designed um environments to work remotely that are more conducive to us as humans. So, you know, people talk about Zoom fatigue and Zoom fatigue is real, but yeah, Zoom fatigue sure. seems, seems torturous because we've forgotten what it feels like to sit in a conference room for four hours in a budget review where nobody can have any coffee or go to the bathroom without being stared at. Uh, like that is uncomfortable, right? And so people have plugged into their own rhythms, but they've also realized what is valuable to them. And that I think is a lot of the resistance in full time back in the office or even going into the office for arbitrary days. So if, if an exec says, okay, everybody has to be in the office Monday and Tuesday, no matter what, uh, that really doesn't seem to take into account the individual needs. We're not going to yeah. have something that comes up that saves everybody and, and works for everybody. But I would really recommend LD leaders, HR leaders, really tap into the why. Why are they bringing people back? And how how is it meaningful for the individuals? I think um, from a recruitment standpoint, where I look at it, it's almost like a global agrophobic fear that we've developed because of the new habits. There's there's almost, I don't know if it's agrophobia, but there's a there's a kind of a fear of going back because we're worried that then they'll want us back more and more. I think that's part of it. And that will obviously impact our lives in some way. There's a comfortableness of our own surroundings, which we've become to enjoy for the last one, two plus years. So I think there's a, almost like a worldwide pandemic of a new sort, really, which is this, this fear of socialising in a way that we used to socialise before in the workplace. But I wonder as maybe one of the benefits we're seeing on the back of this, and I don't know the answer to this, and I haven't necessarily observed anything to say there's one way or another, but you may have done in your world of work, um, Jen. I, I wonder if um, what's the impact from an inclusive and authentic workplace point of view? Are we finding that there's more openness now to change for, for things like, for issues in, in relation to things like inclusivity and diversity? Now that people are in their more comfortable home-based environments, or have we seen no change? Or is this with this 
you know, global reset that we've had that you put it, and I think it's a great way of putting it. It has been a real global reset. It's been a reset for us in many different ways, from health, well-being, balance, and, and different things. And there's, there's pluses and, and, and minuses, as you mentioned, like Zoom fatigue being on, on the negative side. But within that reset, is this a really good time also for L&D and, and, and HR leaders to start pushing through the authentic, inclusive agendas? Because actually, people may or may not be, hopefully they are, more receptive to it now while they're more comfortable in their home environments. I don't know the answers. If there's even any analysis on it, I'm just intrigued to know if you've seen any changes. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting because um, what I've been seeing in the work that I've done around return to office, which you know, primarily is based in Seattle, so it's a bit different, is that their initiatives around return to office are typically di- driven by, you know, execs, leadership, people who tend to have their own offices with doors closed. Yeah who really are not as much of the day-to-day interaction with a lot of people in one room. So what it, I think is being missed is that the, the IND initiative of, if you have it, people who are neurodiverse or sensitive to light or sensitive to smell or you know have mobility issues, and it's just easier for them to be productive in a smaller space, rushing them back to the office because that's what is expected is, is conflicting with your IND initiatives. Do you see what I mean? So it's, I it's, yeah, it's interesting. I, I would highly encourage executives and HR leaders to, to think about when you talk about health and well-being about your employees, that it should be beyond don't catch a horrible disease or, you know what I mean? Health and safety. Yeah, no, for sure. I get goes, it. Yeah. Goes, goes deeper, right? Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think it's a really good point. It'd be interesting to see. I, we don't know the, the the long-term impact yet of this change, I guess, from a, a well-being perspective. I'm sure the results will start to follow, depending on how the new world of work looks fast forward, maybe five years when the analysis is done. From a human perspective, and I, I'm probably going to draw last last question before we open the vault, and I'm just intrigued to know this from a human nature point of view, maybe from your research. I'm dealing with lots of employers now that say, yeah, you can work from home, but we want you in the office one day a week, as an example, or two days a week. Mm-hmm. But actually, they don't specify what those days are. They want to show flexibility. My personal opinion is that that's great, but actually human nature suggests that we like a little bit of structure. And the idea of choosing the days we work from home, and as long as we're in the office two random days a week, I think can be potentially problematic on a, when, you, when you start scaling that up, because you've then got you know, you might have a husband who goes out a different or a wife or a partner who goes out at different times. And actually you were due to go in on Monday. So the manager comes in Monday, but last minute you go, actually, I'm going to come in on Tuesday, but the manager's now gone in and you have these issues, potentially of people being missed and, and communication channels getting blurred because of this total flexibility, which a lot of employers are currently offering. Do you think it, from a human nature standpoint, in the way that we we, we, we are, do we need a little bit of routine in there if we are going to have a hybrid culture of, you know, actually fixed days are better? Or do you think actually, no, let's, you know, this is a, a huge social experiment. We don't know what the actual better results, best results are yet. And actually humans are more more than capable of adapting to a total flexible schedule. Again, I don't know if you may not have the answers yet, but I'm intrigued from a recruitment standpoint to know what you think is best. From my perspective, I think we work better as long as those days are fixed, I think it's better for us to be able to organize our time. Maybe that's because it's me as a parent, but I'd love to know your view. Yeah, and I, I think I think some of it, it just depends. And I know that's a very satisfying answer, but uh, <laughs> a lot of it depends. I think what it comes down to is we want to make sure that it, when we're going into the office, it's it's for something meaningful. Yeah. Like I, I miss the days where we could go into a conference room and whiteboard something out with four or five people because that is magic, right? That is where you get so much more solved and and ideas spark and you know going to conferences and having the college conversations like i miss that and as humans we do we do have a tendency to need to be with each other 
you know, I, I feel for my extrovert friends because this has been really difficult for them. But I also think that we, to your point, we do need some structure and we need some predictability. And so having days where, yes, there are, these are the office days. And then having a concept of like office hours, mm-hmm. where if I am a if I am a subject expert and you need to come to me for specific things, then you know that I will be in office and available from 10 to 2 on these days. And I think it also, it's a shift of, we don't necessarily need to be in the office for eight to 10 hours on those days. Yeah, it's it's sure. more of like an availability. Like I will be here and available this time. No, I agree with that. And I think leadership is so now it's been coming more outcome-based. So as you say, you know, you don't have to be there 10 hours because you're seen to be, you need to be there because everyone else is. Actually, if you manage on outcomes, you, you can deliver and, and be confident at leaving on time or whatever time you think is, is required, which I quite like. I'm quite liking that change. Sorry, go on, please. Oh, no, I'm just going to add, I also think that there's that there's absolutely a need as we balance this out for people who don't have remote offices or home offices. Some people live in tiny spaces or have lots yeah. of roommates or children and they need a space to go for six hours so they can just have some focus time. And if we're not overrunning everybody in a 50 person office, everybody is in there giving each other their colds, for you know, the hours, um, they, those people who need that space have that space and the people who need access to others will have that space. And so it's more of a great point fluid bit blending yeah and you know and something to be fair I'd, I'd probably overlooked in my question for absolutely right not everyone has the same resources and there needs to be the ability for those that need it to be able to to go in and, and have, have accessibility to, to, to a decent space for sure so important for well-being as well to be in the space you, to a workspace that you're comfortable in um so really really great point my last question for open the vault if i may um dr jane which is just to say if you could give three pieces of advice to an hr and leader right now in developing an authentic that's a big question, I know, but uh, if we can give some three key takeaways, maybe uh, as a better way of putting it, to, to, for the HR leaders and, and L&D leaders to take away as they go on towards helping their businesses achieve a more authentically inclusive workplace culture, what would they be? Oh, the biggest point is, is identifying the top three things that you can do to affect meaningful change whether that is educating yourself, whether that is going through and making sure that your your online content isn't, you know, steeped in stereotypes and outdated, uh, just finding what it is that you can start doing immediately. And then you're going to get it wrong. It, <laughs> you just are. But yeah, like it's better to, to go out with very transparent, you know, a, agenda and say, we're going to get it wrong. We're not going to get it right. This is what we're trying to do bring others to the table and get feedback, but don't get frozen into that. I'm afraid to do something because I might do it wrong. Yeah. No, great advice. I've definitely been guilty of that as well. So I think it's great advice. And I'm, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure I won't be the only one listening to that that's thought that. So thank you. So we're going to open the LD vault. Uh, first question, short, sharp answers to four short, sharp questions. Opening the L and D vault. In hindsight, what's the one thing you now know that you'd wish you'd known when you began your career? I, I would honestly say my own potential for change to, to affect change in people's lives just by speaking up and showing up. Great. Fantastic. If you could give one piece of advice to the world to help everyone working in HR now, what would it be? See people as humans. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a unique experience. And, and please stop ex- assuming that your cohorts are, or your, your colleagues are, are straight. This is gender. Absolutely love that. Okay, perfect. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give a younger you just starting out in the world of work? Try everything. If they listen to that, that small voice inside of you that is telling you what you need to do and just try it. Brilliant. Fantastic. And last question. What's the guiding principle or behavior that you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? 
authentic vulnerability, like okay. to be human. Yeah, nice. Perfect. Well, it just about rounds up. And I could genuinely be talked to you for hours. I think by the end of the conversation, if we had more time, did I'd be talking to you about the marginalization <laughs> of Chicanas in Mexico? I think we could take it there. So another time, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to my dissertation days. But it's been an absolutely fascinating talk. Thank you so much for joining me today on the HLND podcast. For those interested in finding the book, um, which I've talked about at length in this podcast, the link will be in the show notes. It's available on Amazon. I will also include the Instagram and Facebook accounts uh, for Dr. Jenna Ryan. So you can access those um, and of course the uh, link to her website which is double tool consulting as well but is there anywhere else you'd like to lead the audience to or any other links of recommendation uh, dr jen that you'd like to recommend uh always happy to connect on linkedin Peace to dr jen great i'll make sure that link is also in the show notes so please do check those out and please please do check out the book inclusive af a field guide for accidental diversity experts fantastic roadmap with some great advice for anyone looking to improve the authenticity uh, and the inclusiveness and diversity of their businesses so please do check that out and of course if you're an hr lnd professional listening to this podcast you need support with an hr or lnd related vacancy please reach out to any of my wonderful team at jgarecruitment.com that link will also be in the show notes just need to say a huge thank you again to dr jenna ryan for joining me today and i look forward to bringing you all the next episode of the podcast real soon take care of yourselves and each other thank you thank you dr jen thank you Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.